Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary on Hannibal's Trail, and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn, I'll be joining their Venetians tour, travelling in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Come along and see for yourself why the Adriatic Sea is the most scenic coastline in the world. Along the way, I'll be sharing stories from my life of travel, adventure and research, as well as exploring the history all around us. It'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history, but to change the way that you think about the past. Now, if you want to find out more, just head over to bikeodyssey.cc. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like spiders, henries and grapes. Or art, depart and the tart. For me, that's a, a culinary route that's mm. taking. Or marts, carts and farts. And we have in fact done the history of the... Bart. It's one of our most popular podcasts. It is. Which it, is it? It is. Well, it, I think it's the work of Sir Keith Thomas, uh, which connects very nicely to uh, today's topic. But we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of rubbish is in fact all about truth, secret habits and fixed wrestlingness? <laughs> it's also about politics in in, in post-war Britain. Mm. I, I'm very fond of the history of rubbish. Yes, me I could, too. I could write an entire book about me the too. history of rubbish. The man sitting opposite me, he is the hammer and nails of history itself. He's Professor Extraordinaire. Early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, Love James. It. Love it. I like to think of myself as at all. Martin Luther. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> Not at all. Okay. So the man sitting opposite me is the Thomas Cranmer of Reformation history. He's the man is a genius, uh, but came to a sticky end. It's the famous <laughs> historical adventurer, the wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. So you can guess, well, sort of, you can probably guess what we're going to talk about today. Um, but it comes about because we have written a series of books on applying the histories of the unexpected theme to 
the Romans, the Vikings and World War II and also the Tudors. And a couple of weeks back, we released an episode on the Tudors and we actually thought there's a lot more to say Tons about more. the Tudors. And what we're going to talk about is... The Reformation. It is the Reformation. We're going to be talking about the Reformation. It's something that James very often, as regular listeners will know, comes back to. Reformation uh, and gloves. This is actually the Reformation podcast yes. you're listening to. It is. So the Reformation, what is the Reformation? Um, the Reformation is essentially a, a process, a movement within Western Christianity in the 1500s, so the 16th century, uh, in Europe... Um, whereby the Roman Catholic Church, which was the the sort of supreme church across most of Western Christendom, was challenged by reformers uh, who disagreed with various sort of ideas to do with um, to do with doctrine and also practice. So, so that's that's a sort of broad brushstroke definition. And they, it they were like whistleblowers, weren't they? Right they at the beginning, are, they kind of said, you, this is not right. What's going on here? So if you have a look at the history of the Christian church, the history of the Christian church has a big tradition of reformists within it. And so people have either what, what you effectively see is a sort of a, a sort of series of developments in the, Chris, in the Christian church um, where you have new innovations and people sort of then become complacent. Um, so you have new sort of ascetic ideals where people sort of set up monasteries and then they become sort of fat and, and sort of, and, and, you know, and sort of forget why they're really there and complacent. And then other people who come along and sort of say and want to reform that then lead to a sort of uh, sort of period of reform, then you get complacency, then you get reform. So the whole of the history of 2,000 years has largely been that. In the 16th century, we have a watershed moment whereby the universal authority of the church in Rome, and particularly the Pope, is challenged. And it's challenged throughout, throughout Europe. In Germany, we have, you know, we have the Peasants' War. You know, we have this kind of this, you know, quite violent and grassroots, groundswell sort of um, uh, sort of opposition to the church in, in Rome. Um, in England, though, which is largely where we're going to talk about today because we're talking about the Tudors, uh, it's altogether very different. Now, I want to give you two key uh, thing, two key ways of thinking about the uh, Reformation in England. Firstly, it is a roller coaster, and secondly, it is an alcohol-free Reformation. Uh, very good. Do you want me to explain why? Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But <laughs> let's go with the roller coaster to begin with. So the roller coaster, the roller coaster is is rather like what we were talking about earlier on. It is the kind of ups and downs of the Reformation. And rather than just seeing it as a single movement, a single sort of Reformation, you need to think of it in terms of a series of Reformations, okay. plural. So we, have, we can distinguish the Henrician Reformation of Henry VIII, which basically saw the split from Rome, the divorce with Catherine of Aragon, the Reformation Parliament from... 1529, a series of legislation brought in. And then um, Henry dies in 
1547, his Protestant son takes over. And this is a son, Edward VI, who's been brought up by Protestant tutors and basically is a devout little um, little thing. Um, and we've got two sort of evangelical, uh, powerful men in the country in the guise of uh, Protector Somerset and the Duke of Northumberland. And so the Reformation becomes much more reformist, so much more sort of Protestant leaning. Um, you've also got church figures who sort of fit into this. Thomas Cranmer is the great sort of architect of a lot of this. Um, but then when Mary comes to the throne, as I think we talked about uh, a few weeks ago, um, the country swings back. And so we have a Catholic revival. Um, then when Elizabeth comes to the throne again in 1558, we have the 1559 Elizabethan settlement, which basically puts all the sort of reformist stuff back on the statute books. So rather than thinking of it as a as simply, you know, Henry VIII comes in and everyone is, you know, the country becomes Protestant, there are sort of ups and downs. And in fact, what happens is... Um, by when Elizabeth comes in, what happens is you get a definition of a an Anglican church, so of one single church that everyone suddenly has to sort of adhere to. And the problem is that that framework isn't as flexible, actually, as the Catholic Church once was, which was a church for everyone. This sort of laid down more or less what you should do, and it didn't fit the Catholics, and it didn't fit the Puritans. And so what you have is a splintering of religion. Um, so there's the, there's the roller coaster. Mm. Alcohol-free? Hit me with alcohol-free. Alcohol-free. Alcohol-free is basically to distinguish the Reformation in England from the Reformation on the continent. As I talked about earlier on, the Reformation on the continent is a really sort of violent Reformation look at what's happening in France and the French wars of religion. You look at what's happening in Germany and you've got uprisings. In England, it's actually a pretty peaceful reformation. It's a reformation from above. And this idea of it as an alcohol-free reformation is not my idea. This, when I was an undergraduate at Oxford, I sat through the wonderful Christopher Hague's lectures on reformation history. And he referred to it as the alcohol-free reformation, because it was just, you know, it just sort of went went through. It was almost reformation by clockwork. Um, and talking to his wife about this, the reason that he came up with this idea, his wife is Australian, the reason that he came up with this idea was from watching alcohol-free beer adverts in Australia. That's it. That's amazing. I, Isn't it amazing? Alcohol-free? I think I don't understand it. <laughs> As in, it's not... So it's not a full... So basically, if you have a look at what happened on the continent, the continent is a... So basic, it's a version that's less spiky. It, it's, le it's less... It, it's it's, al it's alcohol-free in that it's less... Um, it's less full-bodied. Ah, uh, OK, OK, OK. Uh, it's a, basically, the, the Reformation on the continent is a grassroots, groundswell, people want... A new, a new religion and rebel because of it. In England, the old, def the old tradition was that Protestantism 
was pretty popular. Yeah. Anti-clericalism, so a hatred of the clergy, um, seeing the church as full of abuses and basically unfit for purpose was was the traditional view. This was A.G. Dickens. Generation, a generation of historians that's around Chris Haig's generation came in and brought in a sort of new revisionist interpretation of the Reformation, which said, actually, it wasn't that popular. It's a Reformation from above. And actually, it took a hell of a long time to come in. Even once you've got the 1559 Protestant settlement on the statute books, um, what's actually happening in the parishes, um, people are more or less able to do exactly what they want. And so it's not until the 1580s when you have a university-educated clergy who are in the parishes. Um, so, it's, you did the, alcohol-free. Yeah, that's excellent. The, the entire scope of what it's influenced and affected is, is kind of mind-boggling. Mm. Um, mm. And we could do an entire unexpected history of, of the Reformation itself. And I can tell you right now that it would include shadows. Yes. Ooh, yes. It would include perfume. It Incense. would include beards. Yes, yes. Think of all the popes with yes. their beards, the, the yes, post-Reformation yes, yes. people. It would include clocks. Yes. Protestant uh, time. Protestant time. What do you yep. mean by that? Well, Protestant work ethic. So the work ethic is that you have to sort of attend to your... There's a Weberian concept uh-huh. that, um, you know, that as a... As a uh, a Protestant work ethic is that you you are mindful about what you do and keep track of the time. Um, it's also all about beds, deathbeds. Yes. It's all about spying. It's about diaries. Is it? Yes, it's all about diaries. So, so the idea is that it, that is that basically you have to account for yourself uh, in spiritual terms, and with the with the Reformation, you we see a rise in spiritual diaries. Uh, so often sort of puritanical diaries are people writing to to basically account for every all the things that they are doing in their lives. We've talked in the past about Lady Margaret Hobie's diary. Yeah. Remember when we looked at that? And basically her diary, this is a, a gentleman, gentlewoman living at the end of the 16th, uh, start of the 17th century, living in Yorkshire and kept a diary of her day-to-day life where she basically gets up, has breakfast, pray, prays, goes out and does some stuff, comes back, prays, talks, prays. You know, so it's literally what regiments her life. But in our book on the Tudors, the unexpected history of the Tudors, there are four different ways that, we, that the Reformation comes into the story. The history of bones. Yep the history of windows, the history of bells, and the history of fire mm. are all little ways into looking at the Reformation. Should we take one of those? Should we take one of those? Bones. Yep. The bones. So bones is all about relics. Bones and saints and relics. Bones yeah. and saints and relics. And you know, as part of the, the late medieval church or the medieval church, Bones of saints and pilgrimages to go and see them, you know, were an important part of that kind of Christian practice, a Christian Christian worship. And have you ever seen a bone of a saint? I've kissed a bone of a saint. Have yes, you really? Yes, yes, yes. I've done done all that sort of. Yes, of course. Where? If you go into in church, where they, they'll bring like... they'll bring things up. They'll bring things up. I, I've, in England, I, I have actually uh, in 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 England. Yes, okay, in England. 
Um, well, you're a historian. Were you like, this is preposterous. <laughs> this is not a saint's bone. This is as from a, a sparrow. As a, young, as a young boy, I was brought up Catholic, and it was the kind of thing that you that you that you sort of did. And you believe? Um, and and they, well, I, I mean, mean, you believe? A, obviously, I mean, you believe that it was it was actually the bone. Well, of that, the I mean, as a as a small boy, you're presented with something, and you yeah. you know you sort of do it. Yeah. Um, okay. And you know the the Catholic world is full of those kinds of things. As a skeptical academic and everything, I, I you know one wouldn't wouldn't wish to sort of preach about these things. But if you have a look at if you have a look at the preface to Christopher Haig's book of the English Reformations, he talks there about the the religious journey that he's had spiritually and has gone through sort of periods of of strong belief to agnosticism to atheism and i think a lot of a lot of um a lot of academics do that i you know who knows where i am now i'm certainly not going to not going to um announce that on a podcast um <laughs> the, but the the idea of relics in the reformation is actually really important isn't it because one of the things that i've come across that becomes a relic of the reformation itself is where it all began Ooh. It's the door upon which ah. um, Luther took his hammer and nails, and it could be about doors. About, he nailed the ninety-five. He nailed his theses, which I said to my son. He thought I said he nailed his theses yes, to a I door. Thought you would say that. <laughs> he nailed his theses to a be door. Very careful with pronunciation. That. Nailed his theses to a door, and this is these are various uh, arguments he wanted to pick and discuss. He did this in October fifteen seventeen. Um, anyway, I'll talk about this a bit later, but it, um, the door becomes a relic, and it is um, drawn as such, is illustrated as such. Where is it? Uh, it was burnt down in the mid-18th century. Right. It's been replaced by one. There's, there's an amazing one that there now, but it's a replacement of the original. Right. Um, but there is a particularly interesting 18th century engraving of that door on that church um, of a tourist essentially there. So he's a well-dressed man. He's standing yes. in front of the door. This is in 1715, so um, 202 years after it happened, and he's just gesturing up towards the door. And there's another man standing next to him with a big stick also pointing at the door. And so they're on, they're on a door safari around northern Europe. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, it's interesting. And, and there's, there is also belief that for a while, the actual nails with which he had hammered his theses onto the door were still there. And people were going to look at the nails which were attached to it. So there is even a... So that's kind of like a sort of Protestant pilgrimage, isn't it, really? Yeah. It is. But, I mean, bo- back to bones. Bones are still very much part of, of Catholic worship. And if you go to you know, Rome or you go to Italy, you know, s- saints' bones are, you know, are everywhere. Um, of course, reformers uh, were not just refor- reformers, reformers within the church. So Erasmus, the, the Dutch humanist, so he's somebody who's still very much a Catholic, um, but criticising it from within is very critical of this kind of practice. And when Henry VIII um, dissolves the monasteries, one of the things that the people who are going into the monasteries and you know stripping the assets are doing is they are they're confiscating the bones and in some cases they're smashing them up. Um, and so there is so so bones are about conflict between you know different different sort of religious religious views. Mm. Windows. Before that, I want to carry on my doors. I'm going to intersperse my doors idea. Intersperse your doors. Um, We've been doing this for so long now, you actually, you jumped on exactly what I was going to talk about, which is slightly disappointing. What was that? Well, uh, do you know who Thomas Bennett is? 
Thomas Bennett. Just have a have a big think. He I think fifteen thirty one, James. He was an Exeter schoolmaster. Yes, I do. Yes, yes. Thomas Bennett, the Exeter yes. schoolmaster, in October fifteen thirty one. Right, he had some beef, <laughs> and um, he was a bit of denouncing of the veneration of the saints and yes. the Pope as an antichrist. Yes, and he printed some stuff. Yes, do you know what he did with it? He ate it. He hammered it onto the door of, of Exeter Cathedral. Did he know? With some nails. Did he know? He absolutely did. Now, here's another one. This is really interesting. (laughs) Yes, go on. May 1570. Yes. Papal excommunication of Elizabeth I. Yes. That was nailed onto a door. You're amazed by this, aren't you? I can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bishop of London's Palace near St Paul's Cathedral. I've got about 20 other examples no, here. Go on, go through them. Do you want to go through all of them? No, well, not, not necessarily all of them. My friend... Uh... In 1521, James. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. The authorities in Antwerp... Um, or uh... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Became furious because a lot of Lutheran supporters had... Hammered with nails, ballads and libels yep. onto church doors and archways. That's 1521. So it's, so it's four ve- years it's after. Ve- it's very common practice. Um, my friend, my very good friend, Andrew Gordon. Andrew, if you're listening to this, um, happy 50th birthday. Um, and um, uh, he's written about the conscripting of public space. So this idea that if you want to get ideas around, propaganda around... You want to preach your word, you know, and you don't have access to printing presses, which you wouldn't have because they're all controlled. How do you get that? How do you get that out? Well, you you put it out in prominent places, and a cathedral door would be a prominent place. A marketplace would be a prominent place. There's a whole history of fascinating. It's really interesting. Yeah. Notice yeah. boards there. Yeah, yeah. But this, I really like the the irony of this is beautiful. Go on. Um. So when uh when the Pope excommunicates Luther, what yes. happens? They print off the excommunication. Everyone hammers it onto their church doors. That's brilliant. It's, it's great. It's great. I mean, this this actually speaks to us about the, and I think I'm sure we've talked about this before, the church is an instrument of the state. So the church becomes, the church is somewhere where everybody goes along to or is supposed to go along to. And if you want any kind of message brought across, where do you do it? Where everyone goes. So, you know, so the pulpit, certainly post-Elizabeth I in England, the pulpit suddenly becomes a way of getting out, you know, uh, state propaganda, if we can if we can talk about it like that. And one of the ways that you do it is not necessarily through the printed word or the written word, but it is through, it's through sermons and through public prayer, the printing of public prayers that would be read out, that would announce the victory over the Armada. How would people know? That the Armada was defeated? Go to church on a Sunday. Here's another thing to think about. Go on, toss, toss it over. See if you can guess where this is going to go. 
The sound of the nails entering the wooden frame was not unlike the sound of nails being driven into a coffin. Cross. A cross. Oh, okay. You with me? So there's all sorts of hammer and nail stuff going on. Goodness me. It's really interesting. And also, um, it's all about doors. So, So the... The church at the time, by by hammering on his his ninety five theses on the door, and by questioning what the church was doing, um, a lot of people later argued that he was essentially allowing Jesus back into the church, and so the doorway becomes a way of um, al- allowing goodness back into the church, back into this 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 public body, and that is the same history as devil's doors. Do you know what a devil's door is? No, tell Have me you, about devil's door. You need to go to a lovely church near Totnes, near us. The uh, Church of St. Peter and St. Paul is an example of a church with the devil's door. So most churches are built um, on the north-hand side of a road. Um, So the south door faces the sun. It's nice and means the north door is kind of hidden. And it was all at a time when they were built at a time when there were also pagan believers attending church. Anyway, um, they started building small, like little hobbit doors, essentially, on the north walls of churches. And um, it's all to do with people um, following different religions, but within the, within the same building. And also it allows the yep. devil. Yep. Now, this is where you're going to come around. The to devil it. in or the devil out? out? Out, which is a bit like a corpse door and the Vikings. Yes. So what happens yes. when you get baptized? Yes. You are flushed of the devil. Yes. But you were doing it in oh, a church. So the devil needs to go. The devil up. needs to go Love somewhere. It. Love it. And so Love they it. have a door. Outside, is, is, which there, is there a shoe outside the, devil, the door? There might be a shoe outside the door. A shoe outside the door to catch so the devil. It's all to do with um, spirits going in and out of buildings as well. It's genuinely amazing, Ooh. the Reformation. And you we should, haven't even started talking no, about all the other stuff we're going to talk about. You should all uh, go and study the Reformation. It's br- truly brilliant. Miracles, angels, you know, all sorts. The natural world, all sorts. And, and fire as well. And fire. Because we were talking about how do you discover news of the news of the Armada, whatever yes. it was. You go and look on your church door. You look on your notice board. Yes, um, it's actually worth thinking about how everyone did it, did it as well. So it's actually a massive social network. Yes. So it's it is, like it's, a re, it's, it's like a retweet it's or a like social media. So he's he's he's, he's hammering up his ninety five theses, and someone else is taking that and then reprinting it and creating a thousand copies of that, gives it to someone else who reprints it, creates a thousand copies of that, and so on. I can't help but think that all those windows on Hardwick Hall are more about Bess of Hardwick just wanting a bit of bling. This is a woman who had her initials sort of inscribed across the architectural space of this property. Yeah. I like the idea with... um all of the window smashing that's going on is you've got some people who realise there's going to be window smashing in the very foreseeable future and they take their windows away. Yes. And they look after them. They kind of stall yes. them for safety. And then when all the window smashing has happened, even though it's still post for reformation, they put them back up. Yes. And also, I mean, it, it doesn't happen everywhere because there are those people. I mean, it's actually quite expensive to reglaze uh, windows in churches to keep the drafts out. So that it's only it's happening in certain parts of the country uh, at this time and other parts it's not. So it's a kind of an index of, I suppose, of how Protestant the country. If we can, if we can use a term like Protestant in this in this period, fire. You brought up fire. Yes. Yeah, so that's another way of communicating, isn't it? So we got communicating by smashing windows, which is one fairly yep. punchy way of um, saying what you believe in. But the Tudors were, were, were communicated using fire all the time. It's all yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, it was a way of burning people. Burning heretics 
was uh, you know an important part of the of the Reformation, um, and it tended to be you know those who were reformist or who were Protestants who were burned not just in in Mary's reign, but in during the reign of Henry the Seventh, twenty four heretics were burned, eighty one in the reign of Henry the Eighth. There are only two in the six years of Edward the Sixth's reign, only two burnings. But Mary was the one who really embraced burning. Uh, and during this five-year reign, almost 300 men and women, many of them very ordinary, but some of them very high profile, uh, were burned for being Protestants. So this is nothing compared to what's going on on the continent with the, the Inquisition in Catholic Spain. An estimated 150,000 people were persecuted and several thousand executed. And the reason, for, for Catholics, the reason that you burn people rather than do anything else is that you have a bloodless death, which is the best sort of salvation for the soul, uh, you know, supposedly. And is this supposedly. part of the counter-Reformation? So the Reformation happens, then the Catholics go hard line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So, I mean, what happens, the counter-Reformation is fascinating. Because what happens is the late medieval church is really a Gladstone bag of a the Gladstone bag of a of an institution. It is, you know, it's something for everyone, you know. And the church, is, you know, the church is open to all sorts of people within the community. It's a real sort of focal point of all sorts of things. It plays a really important role. Um, so there, while there is, while there are definitions of what of who are heretics and who aren't, there isn't really. You're not facing, um, you know, national churches that you have to. So it's not a sort of it's not a sort of state battle of the state, um, and not a battle that sort of crosses um, over sort of geographical boundaries. You're dealing with, you know, with isolated groups of people that you're that you're putting down. Um, as soon as the Reformation comes around, you um, you suddenly need to define what Catholic doctrine is and Catholic practice, and bring about a way of defending yourself against reformers. Uh, and so the Counter Reformation is basically set up not only doctrinally but also in terms of the infrastructure in order to be able to get your own house in order. And go out. This is when we find the Jesuits. You know, coming into being. So the Jesuit priests are this kind of important um, educational uh, elite force who then suddenly set up a series of schools around around Europe. Yeah, and they're, they're know, persecuted and hunted. People. Persecuted and hunted. They, they appear they in our history of holes we've done. They do, yes. Because they hide. They do, yes. Hide in holes. Um, and while we're talking about the Counter-Reformation, that is the link with beards because there's ah. Sixtus V... Yes. Very famous. Just Google Vatican Museum's portrait of Sixtus V if you buy a computer, and you'll notice he has a truly excellent beard um, and became a, a really important visual image of the Counter-Reformation. Um, I sense we could go on for hours, but we should probably wrap things up. Bells? Ooh, Ooh, let's just bell, say a word. We bell, can't leave people bells, hanging. Bells Again, about communication. Thing. The bells are about communication. So one of the one of the ways in which you look at uh, popular adulation for rulers are, uh, you know, the um, the force with which the enthusiasm with which bells were rung, uh, and supposedly Mary was greeted with you know, uh, you know, widespread peals of bells 
Um, Elizabeth also, you know, so we can see that they were, you know, at that sort of level, at that sort of index, they're popular monarchs. But also the bell in the cert during the service was a really important part of pre-Reformation, uh, late medieval church and their and their mass, you know, and particularly during the Eucharist. So when you're receiving the the, the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ, um, the bell would be rung. So the in particular the sacring bell, and that was banned by reformers. But what p- replaced it was instead a sermon bell, so a different kind of reformist bell. So fascinating, huh? All sorts of different. We changes ghosts werewolves Ooh. the reformation is all about those different attitudes towards them fairies as well well what we're going to do is in the coming few weeks we're going to be carry on doing what we're doing now which is um we are doing unexpected takes on well-known subjects yes so we've done our tudors romans World War Two and the Vikings, and um, we've done the Reformation. We're going to do uh, High Women. We've done Pirates. We're going to do High Women. We're going to do um, Secret Codes. We're going to do Spies. We're going to do Treasure. We're going to do Nazis. Um, we're going to just sort of romp through, aren't we? Do all sorts brilliant of fun, fun stuff as brilliant well. Um, all brilliant fun, but with um, a couple of traditional, just focused on unexpected subjects coming up. Uh, James mentioned to me the idea of doing footsteps oh, before brilliant. we came in. It's a truly wonderful thing. And I have been meaning to do a podcast on walking backwards for so long. And I'm going to make <laughs> us doing it because I've got this, uh, in touch with an amazing artist. Um, and she's made a film about walking backwards. And we're going to watch the film and we're going to talk about her and her work. But I'm not going to do any more until we actually do it. I'd like to do volcanoes. Let's do volcanoes. We haven't done dinosaurs. Oh, and we're also going to do... Um, uh, geographical stuff. So we're going to do the unexpected history of Devon. We are. Uh, yes. Yeah, we thought we'd start here. If, if you if you um, own a county, <laughs> do get in touch. If you own a county, <laughs> a church, a castle, uh, a date, a family. Um, if you're royal, you own a country. <laughs> yeah. Um, run a country. But get we're starting with counties. So we're going to do Devon. Um, if, if you'd like us to do your county... Um, Give us a shout. We'll get in touch with the local museum and see what they've got and we'll, we can see what we can knock up. I'd like to do Yorkshire, but not as much as I want to do Cornwall because it's closer. No, <laughs> not as much as I'd like to do gloves. Oh, okay. And it's nothing to do with counties, but I am I am relocating my obsession with historical handwear. Why is that? Because I'm writing a book at the moment on the history of gloves. So I'm obsessed. The other day, Sam, you get this, I decided that I would write a book on gloves before Christmas. And so what did I do? I went home and organised a bookshelf. It's got notes one end and really interesting things to read. And I wrote some of it down. I got very excited. Anchoring it in history with your writing. Exactly. Um, please refer to previous podcast for that one to make any sense to you at all. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And actually, can you please, please listen to us? If you're listening to us on iTunes, leave a review. If you're listening to us anywhere, leave a review. It really massively helps spread the word. James and I are trying to do something new. We're trying to do something quite difficult. Um, and it's time consuming. It's fun. But we can't get anywhere without all of your support and help. So do please um, show us the love where you can. Yes, and on Twitter, in the Twitter sphere, you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. All live shows, all books, all information, everything is on historiesoftheunexpected.com. Do please check in there. Thank you all so much for listening once more, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>